Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we goldenly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are efficient retellings of a film, utterly indebted to the sensibility of the screenplay that birthed them. While these books revel in the slang, social dynamics, and references of the movie, they are content to play with the existing pieces in lieu of expanding and expounding upon the film's sandbox full of toys. The author of a novelization may stridently aim for this level of discipline, the transposition of a vibrant patina onto the page, but that author's own creativity and giddy humor cannot help but peek through. Providing the barest dusting of pathos-loaded interiority, novelizations do just enough subtle character work to leave the reader craving more, and wondering if none at all would be better than a portion so small. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Johnny Pomato. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Clueless is a 1995 comedy film directed by Amy Heckerling and written by her. It is worth notice. noting. That comes up later. Written and directed. <laughs> Just saying. Big deal. It follows Cher, an affluent teenager who at once sees herself as a pillar of the social structure of her Los Angeles high school and also a removed objective observer of its hierarchy. A real Jane Austen's Emma, if you will. When, Mm. hmm, hmm, who said it before, huh? (laughs) When in a short period of time. Also, a pillar I typed as Yeah, no, I I changed it. it. You changed it? I personally changed it because I didn't (laughs) agree and I was confused and I didn't like it. And I I didn't want to be pinned again with a word that was wrong. It it serves a similar function to a pillar just in the water. Yeah, well, I'm not using it. Okay, great. I didn't use it. I changed it personally because I saw it and I said, no, no. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I'm continuing now. When, in a short period of time, Cher sees the return of her stepbrother, Josh, who's a total babe, the arrival of new protege Ty, also a total babe, and the heel turn of a dear male babe friend, she becomes discombobulated inside the very hierarchy she thought she knew so well. As she struggles to make heads or tails of these multiple dynamic shifts, Cher may need to consider that radical change is actually the norm in life, and that she is as susceptible to the ebbs and flows of high school as the creatures she has so long viewed as fish behind aquarium glass. Disagree with that, Andrew. Great. I, I knew this one was going to be a disaster, this, this intro. The novelization of Clueless was written by H.B. Gilmore, based on the film written and directed by Miss Amy Heckerling, and it was published by Pocket Books in 1995. What a year. Heat. Clueless. <laughs> Pinnacles. Maybe Tremors? Maybe Tremors. Mm. No, 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 no. Anyway. A Tremors tremor sequel. 94, 93? Huh? What was that, Johnny? A, a Tremors sequel, perhaps. Mm. But uh, tremors original Tremors was like 90, right? Yeah. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Something I love about the Tremors films, which we'll never get into because there aren't novelizations, is that as the sequels go on, the the uh covers of the like the posters get ridiculously photoshopped like tremors 3 back to perfection has one of the goofiest looking add-ins of a human being i've ever seen well then they also shifted to like released on video only covers which are a different art form than the blockbuster poster some of the best direct-to-video movies ever made i agree okay 
Tremors 4, just a fucking masterpiece. Our guest today, my good friend, who, as we were saying before we recorded, I haven't seen in like two years, but, you know, affection lives in the heart, and its sustenance is memory. Sam Myers, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. (laughs) Good to be here. Great! Thank you for having me. (laughs) Of course. Now, Sam, as I like to uh, sort of get our discussion kicked off with weird grammatical construction what is your relationship to the property clueless which you picked albeit from a curated list to cover on this podcast what's your what's your history with this movie and uh sort of sort of how do you feel about it uh this is a movie i love dearly uh i first saw it when i was probably uh, a young teen maybe like 13, 14, I watched it with my dad for the first time because he loves this movie, which is like a weird way to be introduced to Clueless, sort of a father-son bonding moment. Um, It is, uh, I think that my dad probably had a crush on Alicia Silverstone, and I like it for different reasons, Um, but uh, (laughs) it is, uh, yeah, it's just really good. I feel like it's, um, it like laid the groundwork for a lot of like future beloved movies about high school girls, um, including Mean Girls. And uh, it's just a classic. Yeah. Yeah, the the direct line of DNA from this to Mean Girls is, like, undeniable. Yeah. I think part of it being, and I I know, I know Hannah. I know about Emma. I know. (laughs) But I think part of it being this breakthrough of, like, in, in the present day, that being the 1990s at the time, them realizing you can kind of make a movie about characters so deeply out of touch. Which maybe wasn't a given. I don't know. Teen characters that aren't, like, super relatable to the teen audience seems like kind of a big ask to me. This was definitely a a major moment uh, in that, you know, John Hughes had basically been out of the game for uh, five years or so. And his like, you know, his quintessential teen movies, it had been even longer. So in my memory, there had really been a, a you know, a lack of uh, this kind of movie for quite some time. And uh, people uh, uh, were were almost uh, unanimously dismissing this before it came out. And uh, there was a great surprise when it was released. And, and you know, everyone saw how great it was. Hanny looked upset no no i was just thinking i think there's also a line from heathers to clueless um but with like clueless is just much more affectionate towards its rich girls in a way that feels sort of new and fresh because uh, it's so much easier count. to just be like well yeah that too mm-hmm. but it's very easy to be like well they're rich and they're beautiful and they're stuck up so we hate them and that's relatable and to say like yeah but they're also nice girls <laughs> It feels very fresh and is refreshing, and I love it, actually. I have a question uh, related to you stumbling through the intro that, that you did a great job, but like I wrote yeah. a fucking mess of an intro. <laughs> and the what is the inciting incident of Clueless? Because usually when I sit down to do these plot synopses, I'm like, clearly this is a movie about how Batman is trying to get along with a little boy. <laughs> But this time I was like, there's four different unrelated things that happen in this movie, and they, at no point in it can I pinpoint, like, this is the driving force of the plot. They're all coexisting at once. 
It is about Cher's self-discovery and growth as a person. And these various plots force her to look into her own heart and go like, wait, am I stupid? Am I vapid? Am I not a valuable person like I thought I was? How can I be more the person that I want to be? And part of that is Josh saying to her, like, you are stupid and vapid. You should try harder. And she's like, I'll show you. And part of it is Ty taking on her aspects and go and Cher's able to look at that and go, oh, that sucks. I don't want to be that person. It's the arrival. I think it is the arrival of Josh, right? I mean, it's just like he doesn't he doesn't change her right away or like his arrival doesn't have like a seismic impact on her life at the beginning of the story. But it's like him being there, like unsettles Cher in some deep way that she takes the whole story to figure out. You know what I mean? Like, like him being in the house with her makes her want to figure out something about her identity or the way she lives in the world. (laughs) And then she like, she tries to meddle in other people's lives throughout the whole story. You know, like she's a meddler. She tries to shape other people and make decisions for them. And then at the end discovers that in fact, she needs to figure herself out first Josh is someone who's like not impressed with her yeah and that's really that pushes her and I would say that if you hadn't read Emma although I think that this is true with Emma too is that one of the reasons it is such a great romance is because almost nothing leading up to her discovery of attraction to Josh is telegraphed like I I mean granted I was uh uh, 14 when this came out but uh, I, I, I I don't think most people who didn't know the source material uh, were keen to the fact that oh yeah obviously she's going to end up with this Paul Red guy whoever he may be uh, <laughs> oh yeah the star of Halloween 6 or, <laughs> that had not happened yet um, but, uh, but yeah I think it's one of the things that makes Emma such a great novel and it's one of the things that makes this such a great movie is that it is more about her and the guy who has been there from the very beginning you don't even think like well yeah it's obviously a rom-com between these two attractive of people because she is more important than any little side love story and he's not that attractive in this movie yeah not to be rude to paul rudd he's obviously a baldwin (laughs) but he's a total baldwin (laughs) he is look he's a total cutie he's a baldwin for sure but i think that this is he gets a lot cuter over time as a uh, as a man he does and in this movie particularly he's like his voice is really squeaky he's like pretty annoying he's not like the cute boy in the movie for most of the movie yeah. he's a little doughier so he's a daniel baldwin <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he's pretentious I, and like there are things about him that we don't like obviously but he's yeah. so darn cute in this movie um yeah but it's it's true it's funny to think about paul rudd coming on the screen and people being like oh he's a guy <laughs> like rather than being like that's movie star paul rudd that's yeah. uh 2021 sexiest man alive <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I, I think the the preoccupation I have with the inciting incident is only in appreciation of the screenplay. The, I am troubled by the fact that I find this movie so compelling, but I can't sort of parse its driving force in the way that I can do with other movies. You're very I plot mean, driven, Andrew. This is a well established no, fact. You like can't. But- do a vibes only movie <laughs> that's not true i can do a vibes only movie if i understand what is at stake 
between the people who are vibing or like what their <laughs> core relationship is. I think the thing that 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 throws me about this movie is that I am interested, but I can't figure out what's keeping me going in act 1 because they present this idea of uh Mr. Hall and and Ms. Geitz, you know, getting together and that's something Cher's trying to do. She just accomplishes it immediately. It seems like it's going to be the plot of the film. <laughs> And I, I agree. I think the thing with Paul Rudd is like not only a great um, portrayal of a slow burn attraction and the sort of attraction that we all had as teenagers where we were like, why do I suddenly feel really funny about my close friend who's just a friend? <laughs> and then six months in, you're like, I think I'm having a horrifying realization. I, I think it portrays that in astonishingly well. It's just incredible to be able to do that and still make the first 30 minutes of your movie compelling it's alicia it's Cher. i mean Cher is such a fun character from second one she's like delightful and cute and charming and joyous and nothing about her is like mean like even the stuff that she does that is not the nicest thing for a teenage girl to do like it comes from a good place she's just a little ignorant and for me like that's so boying Booing, right? Like it just is. Mm -hmm. I just like want to spend time with her. She's great. Like she would be the most popular girl in my school because I would want her to be the most popular girl. She deserves <laughs> it. She's wonderful, right? Yeah, I agree completely. I when you said that at the beginning of this um, conversation, I was like, yes, that is exactly why I love this movie. Like it's so, it's such a surprising take on the on the like hot pretty girl like archetype because she's so kind <laughs> um yeah it's it makes the movie feel so like it, it just like she's such a specific character um she does not feel like a stock character she feels like a very specific rendering of a girl speaking of her specificity hannah yeah what issue did you take with the way I wrote the intro. A part of it made you go, I don't agree. Oh, um, the part where you talk about how, like, she may need to consider that radical change is part of life. Like, I don't think that's her lesson at all, actually. Hmm. And I think her lesson is much more about, like, acceptance and opening her heart outside of her, like, concept of what people should be and taking people as they are and liking them like that. Like, her journey towards the end where she's like you know like ty can do what ty wants and ty can be with travis and travis is nice actually there's nothing wrong with him i don't know why i was so bitchy about him like that growth for her and her like it's not really about like where do i fit into my world it's like how do i be the person i want to be and also realizing the person she wants to be is like a good person who helps others genuinely not for her mm -hmm. own reasons but for their betterment um, and their happiness like that to me I feel like is more about what's happening with her and it's not like hmm I, it's not like as d distanced from herself as you seem to have written it to be I don't think that these are separate thoughts I mean I agree with everything you just said she definitely comes to learn that like the roles that she thought everyone plays are not these rigid roles that they have to stay in like Ty can date Travis, that's fine, and she does become more giving. But to me, it's because at the beginning, she's like, I have sort of a top-down view of how this entire place works. And it's that perspective that allows me to, for example, decide not to date a high school boy. Because... I get it. Like, I see high school for what it is. I, I, she, she, I think, believes she has a little bit of a 
perspective that others don't. And then by the end of the movie is like, I'm like a part of this, this living organism that is the high school and I, and I move and I, I operate within it. And I think that there's like an acceptance there. I just, I don't understand why those can't be an agreement. I don't know. Maybe it's just something about the way you, like you saying that. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. I get you. I hear it. But something about the way you wrote it in the intro, I was like, this doesn't feel right to me. This doesn't feel true. Aquarium glass. True to share. Yeah. I kind of like that, that phrase, that, um, phrase you coined about watching the world through aquarium glass. I feel like, but it's not that she doesn't participate in her own life. Like that's not really what it is. It is that she, she, you know what? I think it's a rejection of she, she, she moves away from the makeover as a philosophy of, you know, that like Mm -hmm. everything needs to be made over. Like the people in her life need to be like sculpted or something. Um, It's more about an acceptance of, people as yeah hannah you said the same thing but it just occurs to me that like she has this obsession with makeovers you know and -hmm. that there's something about that that is also like she needs to move away from that in order to like live in the world fully (laughs) i think the most like the pivot scene for me is that part where she's like sometimes i just like being at home in my sweatpants that's when i'm happiest and it's like this little epiphany that doesn't quite hit her right at that moment but that like sometimes just being yourself you don't have to get all gussied up. You don't have to try and be anything. Being whatever you are at home is just as good and is probably the happiest you'll ever be. And that's enough. Yeah, this is I'm such fat. a... No, a well, it, I, I was just going to add that it, it really is a perfect like transplant of you know this classic work to a time and place where it's like, oh my gosh, everything lines up. It's still about status. It's still about cliques and fitting in mm-hmm. and uh and and popularity and such and it's uh i mean this really sparked this new wave of of jane austen adaptations even you know the i think the a and e pride and prejudice was the same summer with the uh, colin firth and jennifer ely but like it this really was the moment that it all happened and then i think sense and sensibility was that uh fall so um uh and uh yeah it it really uh i think was a wake-up moment for everyone to realize oh wow these you know these ancient uh novels are actually incredibly timely and modern and uh they they hold up they're they're still funny and uh yeah it was a a huge deal if i may make a confession i saw clueless as a teenager right and i had never read emma and i was not familiar with emma and i didn't know that clueless was based on emma and then i saw emma period that came out a couple years ago. Oh. And I was like, oh, this is Clueless. Oh. <laughs> wow. And suddenly not, I was like, ha, huh, ha. Huh. Not even the Paltrow movie. You you, you, you made it all mm-hmm. the way to yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy. Wow. It was assigned to me in college and I didn't read it like, to oh. that very point. Um, yeah, I just never, I, I had heard that it was Emma, but I had no real familiarity. And this time around watching Clueless, I was like, this is such a, like almost beat for beat, Emma. It's kind of a, extraordinary how well it works without any of that context. It's so brilliant, so good. The the, the humiliation of uh, I do not remember the character's name in Emma. I apologize. Is it is it Mia Goth in Emma? Harriet. Yeah. Oh, the humiliation yes. of that character, who I I must assume is the the tie analog, right? Mm-hmm. Is is more extreme in the reason Emma adaptation, whereas in Clueless, it's more of like a personal falling out. That's that's the one deviation I kind of see. Oh, that she, um, 
that that their uh, friendship ends before uh what Ty in this uh falls for Travis again? No, I more mean that like and maybe I'm misremembering Emma, which I watched during the pandemic. I did one of those twenty dollar rentals just to feel something. Uh, their falling out like culminates in that movie in in a uh, an argument that's like in front of others, and in which Emma really puts her down in front of like many people. Whereas it's more of like a private falling out in Clueless. Well, I think that that is actually the character of Mrs. Bates. Who or uh, who is uh, uh, in in Clueless? Kind of combined in uh, along with uh, Harriet into one character. Um, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, so so she's she. It's it's a little uh, it's a little muddled. I think that's one of the few events from the novel Emma that doesn't completely line up one to one in Clueless. I would say. I think that I mean, from my remembrance of Emma, period, having again never read the Jane Austen with my own two eyes, uh, the "You're a Virgin Who Can't Drive" is essentially there's a part where Harriet's like, "What do you even know about any of this? Like, I love him, this farmer, mm-hmm. and like, you don't know. I'm not better than the farmer. Shut the fuck up, bitch." And like, it's a similar sort of interpersonal falling out, as I recall. Sweet, sweet Mia Goth. I would like to uh, note that I took a Jane Austen course uh, in freshman year of college where we read her complete works. I was the only uh, male identifying member of the class at the time in a sea of young women. And um, that uh, did absolutely nothing for my social and dating life whatsoever. <laughs> I tell you, I took a women's lit course, um, which also had one male presenting person in it. And he seemed to think that he deserved some sort of applause for being in our class. <laughs> so we hated him. He was terrible. Uh, I, I did not uh, make such requests. I, uh, <laughs> just blended in with everyone else. <laughs> Johnny, I can't believe we didn't have you on our episode about the Jane Austen book club. It seems like a crime. I, yeah. I think I was on a plane when that happened, I, I, I believe. Something like that. Yeah. I was explaining that movie to someone recently, and they were like, uh, oh, and and the the plots, the little vignettes in the movie reflect uh, the plots of the Jane Austen books. And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just reading them. It really doesn't affect it at all. I can't remember if I saw that or Austen Land. Like I, I I know I saw one of them, and I can't tell you which. They're very different. Yeah, yeah. We'll do Austen Land at some point. Great, Sam. Yeah. No wrong answers. Have you ever in your life? picked up a film novelization before no never once nor has it ever crossed my mind (laughs) (laughs) what's what's the first impressions like when you're forced essentially forced to (laughs) make your way through this novel how are you feeling picking this up for the first time well i had a lot of feelings about it i didn't i didn't not enjoy it i like (laughs) it's a story it's like a movie that i feel so nostalgic about and like it was kind of like if i I don't know. It was like an opportunity to live in this world again and like be with these characters I really like. And it is, it is, it includes every line of dialogue from the movie, which I didn't know what to expect, but, and I'm not sure if that's consistent across all novelizations, but this is the entirety, like every word that is said in the movie is also (laughs) in this novelization. So it was like reading the screenplay with like a clumsy attempt at, (laughs) at including, (laughs) at including like interiority for Cher. And I didn't mind those attempts at interiority, except that 
I kept wishing that this novelization was written in the third person, I think, because it's mm. so uncomfortable to see, to like read these passages where the voice of Cher, like using all of these like uh, sort of ridiculous slang terms and stuff, like it just gets, she just uses all of that same lingo in the first person narration and like i made note of a couple of moments that made me laugh out loud because the idea of a person's internal monologue just being exactly the same as the way they talk to their friends is like so silly <laughs> like there's a part where there's a, there's a very short sentence that is not dialogue and it's dusk was falling or whatever <laughs> i was about to read that that is I hilarious it. It really made me laugh, but like a lot of it just feels that way. It's like it's like the the notion that this teenage girl moves to the world and just like speaks to herself that way. It just it's yeah, it's just so implausible. Sam, I agree uh, in the sense that like I on page one, I just had this moment of realization. It's like, oh, of course, the movie is like has a first person narrator narrator yeah it, this is just going to be the movie and yeah. i mean it, it's almost a crutch but at the same time i also thought well that movie is just about a perfect screenplay i i do i do think it is one of the best you know comedies of the 90s just a great movie period and so it's like well yeah it obviously it would lend itself to this format you probably don't need to do much so i did like note the few little changes that were made here and there that i thought were interesting but yeah it is why i think this is one of the better novelizations we've read just because yeah it's the movie and it's a good movie to begin with it's yeah it's not like uh you know a, a bad movie that actually has a good novelization written about it or or vice versa um and uh yeah i i just think that like yeah of, of course this works uh, maybe it's a little simple, and and I at one point I thought like, well, I don't even need to read this. I could just like watch the movie again. It's that close. But then I thought, no, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to read this because that's what was assigned to me, and I did. <laughs> I love how everyone thinks of me as like their teacher. <laughs> it's homework. What we do here is homework. It's true. Sometimes more than others. Like yeah. I like that this book is in the first person. I think it's very charming to watch an author try and match Amy Heckerling's like very specifically sharp writing style for these characters to mixed results. I mean, there is so much of it that is just straight dialogue from the film. And then once in a while, you're like, oh, a creative element, a <laughs> yeah. touch, a thread. Um, Usually to censor something fun. a little too adult for teenage girls. Yeah, this is also very clearly, I mean, this is a 160 page book, like very clearly written for a slightly younger audience rather than an adult audience. So like, yeah, there's some censoring and then there's some stuff that's like the the movie is from Cheryl's point of view, but she is not in every single scene. And in order to get that scene into the novelization, there's some creative stuff happening, <laughs> which is pretty fun to see how those problems are solved. I'm not sure if I know what you mean by that, Hannah. Like, I can think of examples of that in, like, Greece. Yeah. When, when so, for example, here? when they're go when she's going to that rave with Christian, in the movie, she and Christian leave, and then Josh is like, I should go. Should I go? I should go. I don't know. And in the novelization, they have to have a scene where Cher, like, goes up into her closet and has, like, an intercom and is able to hear that conversation yeah. so that that is part of the story. But uh, she doesn't experience that part of the story in the movie. 
I made note of that same exact scene because I was like, what an interesting way to put Cher in that. In that it really just, like stood out to me. It would be yeah. equally as good for them to be like, we were standing right outside the door and I overheard Josh say. Right. And instead there's this sort of like complicated world buildy <laughs> little touch. Here's the, uh, here's the paragraph. It's, he's so protective, meaning her father. When I was a kid, daddy had an intercom system put in my room so he could hear me from his office. The old speaker was tucked away now, deep inside my walk-in closet. I was in there looking for a sheer cover-up to throw over the slip dress when I spotted the intercom. For old time's sake, I threw the switch. Josh's voice came through. I don't like him, I thought I heard him say. And then you get the whole scene. Yeah. For old time's sake. It's both for old time's sake. For old time's sake. (laughs) But like for a book that also is really paying more attention to the fact that Cher did lose her mother and that really affected her, like more than the movie, I think, to touch again on this thing that like after her mother died, she could not be left alone. And she was really scared to be left alone, which the book mentions a couple of times. And this intercom is evidence of that and that it is carried into who she is now. Like that informs her character quite strongly, I think, that she... She can't be alone. She, like, needs the surrounding and the validation of other people. I completely agree, Hannah. And I think that this is a good segue uh, to one of the, I think, biggest noteworthy changes from the movie. Uh, I'll, I'll be curious if anyone else felt this. Because uh, it, it happens very early on. Like, oh, the first opening. few pages. <laughs> yeah, the opening and then, thing, yeah. and I thought, oh, this, <laughs> the dead mother is going to be a much bigger part of this than she is in the movie, where it's really a throwaway line and it's a joke about, oh, she died during a liposuction accident. And in this... Anna, do you have this on hand or Johnny? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's page yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> someone it, it, someone read this I mean, for the three days ago, please. I think I said to Andrew, this book opens in the craziest way I could have possibly imagined. Yeah. I, feel, I was really <laughs> shocked by the opening. Yeah. Well, chapter one is Cher describes a dream she has with her dead mother. And so like the first sentence is, is, I had this dream a couple of months back. It's about my mom. She died when I was just a baby. A fluke accident during a routine liposuction is what I tell people. My mom was a seriously stunning disco babe, a real Betty, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, in this dream, I'm like catching her up on my life. I tell her about my best friend, Dion, one of the major Bettys of Beverly Hills High, and how we ride around and blah, 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 blah. And she goes on and eventually her mom is like, you don't know shit, babe. Like, yes, it, it's her mother it's who, who uses the titular line, you're clueless, or <laughs> so clueless. And uh, also, I, I think uh, noteworthy in that passage is d- uh, dif- differentiating, differentiating itself from the movie is she says, uh, she died in a liposuction accident is what I tell people. So, yeah. Wait, how did she die? If it wasn't that. <laughs> in the movie, I think it's that. It's just a, it's a joke. And, uh, but yeah, it's like, ooh, I, I thought, ooh, by the end of this, we're going to find out really how she died. It's going to be like really interesting. It's going to mean something. And I don't think it ever comes back. I, I, I the, read this pretty The carefully. cause was correct, but the motivation wasn't. It was, it was suicide by liposuction. Uh, I, I wondered, but it, it sounded like a suicide <laughs> thing to me. And then also the implication, I think that she says is, uh, she never knew her. Like, she died when she was very young, like a baby or a toddler or something, which is not the impression I got in the movie. I thought it was a... I don't know. Well, may, I don't. it's been a little bit since I've watched the movie. but So I guess Dan Hedaya's had a few wives since then. So I guess she would have had to be young-ish. But I always thought that she had some sort of relationship with her and that informed on her. But yeah, I, I don't know. 
the fact that this starts the same way as the great gatsby is so damn funny <laughs> like this is like the, the clueless version of when i was young my father gave me advice blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's so and it, it really tees you up for a different uh, type of book then you end up getting yeah because you get that wild first two pages and then the rest as sam was saying is like it has every line of dialogue which by the way sam when we, we've interviewed a few authors who have written novelizations and it seems like the studios have wildly different requirements like depending on you know which studio you're working with and which movie it is and sometimes they do say you have to put every line of dialogue in the book. And sometimes they say you can only put every line of dialogue uh -huh. in the book. You can't invent lines. Whoa. There's clearly some invention here. Yeah, there is. Definitely. I mean, I think H.B. Gilmore certainly had some leeway and chose not to do a lot. But the, is the, the vibe I get. This framing of Cher's, of the loss of Cher's mother being like the thing that has defined Cher's adolescence like that is a big addition like it really does change yeah. the way the story lands and i and it adds oh, i'm sorry go ahead no no i was just gonna say because you you mentioned the thing about Cher being unable to be alone and i wrote down this quote that comes like in the middle of the book when Cher is alone in the valley after being mugged and she's like waiting for josh <laughs> to come pick her up and she says in or this is um part of her like first person narration Daddy says for years after mom died, I'd practically go postal when he walked out of a room. He says at night I used to sneak into his room and hide in the closet just so I wouldn't have to be by myself. Like, it's this intense trauma that she's carrying with her about solitude as this, like, as the worst possible thing. Like, it's just, it adds a kind of, like, emotional stakes to her, like, to her, like, social, like, her extroversion. It's just really interesting. I totally agree. And yeah. it adds something to her relationship with Josh, who's like the number one person who's always saying like, well, you didn't have a mom. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why you're the way that you are. Like he sees her and sees that about her. And then like further down on that same page, you were just quoting, like he comes to get her. Like, blah, 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 blah. When Josh and his mother moved right? into her house, everything changed. Suddenly there were all these people and no noise and Gail slamming in and out of doors and my dad laughing and crazy family dinners and phones ringing and Josh's friends teasing my friends and cannonballing into the pool and me and Josh arguing. He was always trying to help me do things I thought I could do by myself. It was like, if I tripped, Josh would be there to catch me. If I fell, he'd rush over to pick me up. After Josh came, I was never alone. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so important to her. <laughs> he's, he's it. He's the thing that makes her feel, like, not so scared and lonely. And that's, like, so powerful as a relationship base. Like, of course they should end up together. We'll see how scared she is after he takes her to spend one night in the Michael Myers house there. <laughs> <laughs> we uh we are making this book sound like a really inventive piece of uh of novelization when we're really just uh, understandably we've covered like three of the only five embellishments in the entire tone it's true it's true <laughs> they're really good well, embellishments the, though no it, it, terrific oh, that's what i was trying to sort of say in my section of the intro i feel like when gilmore does something uh, they, I didn't look up this author, they are nailing it. And it's like, it's really fun and really interesting to the point where I almost wish they didn't do it because I, <laughs> I wanted more fun. I 
I, well, okay, I, I disagree. I, I, th- I think that everything that they do is really uh, effective, but I think that there should be more of it. And I did lament that this book clearly is aimed at a younger audience, uh, so much so that we're almost any real allusion to sex is taken out uh, mm-hmm. pretty much I don't entirely. Know if you guys can see the, the girl who previously owned my book, Danielle. Ooh, Danielle. Yeah. Who maybe looks like was nine. Yeah, that handwriting yeah, is from a the child. handwriting. Yeah. The handwriting, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we're not even, we're even removing references to the menstrual cycle, which, you know, conceivably these, uh, these young girls reading this book are just about the age to go through. I mean, Danielle, uh, you know, that, that's what's coming up. Um, yeah the crimson wave yeah the crimson wave yeah it turns into vegetarian chili and i had to miss the uh, that's why i was late to class it's like wait so so poor Cher has the shits and that's why (laughs) like that's better oh yeah i don't know uh but yeah i i think that this if this had been aimed a little higher this could have been a really good novel and frankly there's you know so much of it is taken directly from the movie I almost wish that Amy Heckerling had had the chance to just write it herself. You know, this could have been the uh, once upon a time in Hollywood of its day. Sam, I do want to go to bat for uh, Gilmore regarding something you said earlier, which is the idea that Cher processes everything in her interior monologue in the same way that she acts outwardly did work for me. Really? And I get what you're saying about it not working for you. Um, I loved, uh, you know, whatever that line was. Uh, dusk was falling know, or dusk, whatever. <laughs> dusk was falling or whatever. Um, I, I found it very compelling, the idea that she is sort of the product of, as we've been saying, trauma, and she has uh, heavier things going on in her life, as we all do, but she's so purely this person that even when she's, I, I, frankly, facing those traumas pretty head on. I mean, when she thinks about them, she's not being like, I'm actually fine. It's, you know, she's not dancing around it. She's being like, I used to be a fucking mess and then things got better. I I felt like she was just so totally who she seems to be uh, that that voice carries through her no matter what emotion she's putting forth. Yeah, I think that she is a very pure human being. Like, I believe that as a character. Like, I don't think that she is deceitful or that she... I think that she is always herself all the time. Like, I agree that that's a, that's a key part of who Cher is um, and what makes her lovable. She's very sincere. Uh, but I feel like um, there's something about the movie that's very important, like, to the aesthetic experience of the movie that you know there's distance between the point of view of the filmmaker and the characters you're watching i I don't know how else to put it like there's a kind of ironic like distance you get Mm -hmm. and i feel like when you remove that distance i it broke something for me (laughs) like it made it harder to laugh at Cher or to find her funny it was a little bit like okay now there's no now we're now we're in your head all the time we don't get to just hear the funny things you say. Instead, we have to like be too close to you. <laughs> I don't know. That's I. I'm struggling to articulate it, but like that's the that was my. No, that's issue. An, that's yeah. interesting. We, you, you're taking away sort of uh, one of the participants in the film, that being like the eye of the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Hannah, break the tie or Johnny. How do you feel about this convention? I like it. And I think if you were reading most of this book in the first person and it didn't have like the slang incorporated into the basic stuff, you'd be like, this is not Cher. Like clearly anybody who speaks in the way she speaks has incorporated that into her very core. Like you aren't casually tossing slang if you aren't living slang, you know? Like anytime I hear some like new slang from the teens or whatever and i'm like okay now it's time to incorporate bay into my vocabulary you know like it's hard to just be like i'm hip and i use the language like you have to like make it yours right um and i think that that is reflected in the writing of this book and that works for me i hear what you're saying sam but like it is not a funny book in the way that the movie is funny like it it falls totally flat on that level um, and I think you're right that it's the the distance to like look at Cher and love her, but not be her. Right. <laughs> it's not funny because it's it is missing that perfect element of Alicia Silverstone's performance, and she was so good in this movie. Yeah. It's really, I think, one of the like great debuts. I don't know had she done the crush at this point. Maybe that had been the year before, but still, it's one of those like great sort of star making debuts that you know unfortunately didn't really like pay off um you know she and not due to lack of talent she just i think picked a few bad projects but uh i do think that you know most of the dialogue that's intact would frequently make me smile be mostly because i would remember like the delivery in the movie and think oh man that's such a great line uh it, it, it's uh you know it, it is so clever and witty and funny uh but you do almost need her voice doing it right yeah, like the the um, we can totally party with the Hadians scene where she's presenting to the class is just like one of my all time favorite scenes. It is so funny, and I it it does it loses its magic. It feels flat without Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> it just wasn't. Yeah. I I was like you're saying. I was Johnny. I was delighting at being reminded of the scene, but it was really just about the memory of the movie playing in my head. Yeah, reading this really made me want to watch the movie again. It's probably been a few years for me. I know. Did H.B. Gilmore invent, and I watched the movie like a day ago, and I, I still can't remember anything. Did H.B. Gilmore invent the line where Mr. Hall, after uh, the scene Sam was just talking about, is like, is like, uh, you don't have, you don't have anything to argue, like you can't find any flaws in her argument. I find that impossible to believe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's invented. <laughs> that was pretty good. I, there's a couple moments, uh, I basically agree with you uh sam about like this this idea that because of the narrative voice the humor is neutered i think that's definitely true whether we agree that it's a good choice to make her the narrator or not it definitely suppresses the humor a couple times i do think gilmore manages to get something funny in but it's usually not like laugh out loud funny it's usually like, that's an interesting little wrinkle that I didn't know about the world. So page four, this first thing about Lucy was kind of amusing. Lucy, I yeah. mean, I wasn't grabbing my sides, but this part Lucy's where- Lucy's much uh, more of a character in this book than she is in the movie. I, yeah, I took a lot of notes about Lucy greatly expanded in this, <laughs> in this version. On the fourth page, it says, Lucy thinks that if my dad realizes we have a maid, he'll demand that she work or fire her. So she tries to hide when he's at home and eats when he's not. Also, Lucy colors her own hair. It's this glowing red shade not found in nature with about an inch of black roots showing most of the or showing most of the time. 
Some inner rhythm tells Lucy when it's time for a touch-up. It's just as well my father doesn't see her much. He's, like, very into neatness and grooming. <laughs> it's it's just, like, she's just sort of there in the movie, and, she you know, it's a fine performance and whatnot, but the insight into the dynamic where she's essentially the guy from Office Space just being, like, don't let him know I'm on the payroll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have the sweetest deal on Earth. Yeah. I was I was less comfortable with the additions about Lucy's weight and like the kind of like one of the yes. main traits yeah. that she has given is that she doesn't eat well and that she's gaining weight. And there's like the weird se- sequence where Cher like takes time to notice Lucy's leftover food in the in the sink and she describes a couple of browning banana slices floating in a froth of melted ice cream, hot fudge mm. smears and a confetti of rainbow sprinkles. Lucy's lunch. It's just like a weird thing to be like, yeah, Lucy eats like shit. I don't know. Uh, this it is, is something that we, uh, I, I think, uh, discuss from time to time when we're doing this podcast is do we think that, like, where did this come from? Do we, are, uh, it's, I guess it's been a while since I've looked at a Clueless DVD. Are there a lot of deleted scenes with Lucy? Do we think this was in the original script? Because it is one of the strangest additions. Like, of all the things to flesh out, uh, that's a weird one. Hannah and I have run up against this recently. We're doing Speed 2, which for the listener came out like seven months ago. Mm-hmm. But the <clears throat> as much as like fat phobia is still an issue today, it seems like these 90s novelizations <laughs> are... I mean, like, I don't remember the 90s too well. I was born in 91. Like, I, I just don't remember what culture was like. The novelizations from the 90s give me the feeling that, like, it was such a dominant part of culture that it was just, like, expected that you would include it and stuff, and it, like, wasn't a problem. I feel like at least today, if you have some sort of fatphobic line in a book or a movie or whatnot, people are like, hey, that's not cool. I don't know. I I think you're right. I mean, you (laughs) must remember that the 90s were the height of, like, heroin chic. Like, the hottest thing Mm -hmm. you could be was unhealthily skinny. Right. Yeah. I did in this vein, uh, just reminded me, there is a line, I think, where she grabs a stick of juicy fruit gum and says, like, oh, the 30 calories from it. Whatever happened to NutraSweet? And I'm thinking, wait a second, this is 1995. Wasn't there NutraSweet then? (laughs) If anything, it was a year ago uh, before, what, we transitioned to Equal and then Sweet and Low and then Splenda. I don't know. It just amused me. It just made me feel old. I mean, she's a teenage girl. Like, your body is so tenuous during that period. And especially if you're, like, a pretty teenage girl or a skinny teenage girl. Like, there's a lot of pressure to be skinny and pretty. No, of course. And if you have it, letting it go is terrifying. Oh, no. And Cher is, like, very secure, actually. Like, as much as she's obsessed with her body and her weight and how much she eats, like, she knows she's beautiful and doing fine. (laughs) Like, which is kind of, like, a nice um, shade of that. Yeah, no, she doesn't my, hate her body at all. My issue with that passage was just that I, I thought NutraSweet was very much a thing then. It, it, it was very big <laughs> in the 90s, and I thought that that continued, like, at least until, like, 98, 99. But, yeah, I don't know. My memory's not what it once was. That reminds me of a line I think of all the time uh, in a perplexed way. You remember in Call Me By Your Name when Army Hammer is offered a second egg at breakfast, and he's like, 
oh, you know, I I can't be having a bunch of eggs. You'll you'll end up rolling me out of here at the end of the summer. And I'm, I remember watching that movie and looking at that, like, Adonis, who we all love and think is a good man. And I was like, I was like, how does this man exercise without eating more eggs one egg i need like two or three eggs to go biking you can't eat an egg and be ripped i would never want to be seen eating two soft-boiled eggs at breakfast though like not from a weight perspective just from a like ew perspective like two scrambled eggs is fine because they're all in one lump but to say, yeah. like, yes, another circular egg, please. <laughs> top, top. Yeah. <laughs> Icky. Oh, I'm always trying to get laid. Are they so eating the eggs, like, that. in the egg cup that you, like, crack the top? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. That's My a yuck cup runneth from me. Over. <laughs> um, anyway, back to the clueless. <laughs> I just think about that egg thing all the time. <laughs> Constantly. Um, as I'm making, like, a fucking five-egg omelet in the morning. The... <laughs> Uh, okay, beginning of the movie. This is really a movie question. When she selects her outfit on the computer, she still has to go get it, right? Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. maybe she has, like, the mich- the racks that move. Maybe it, like, a uh, dry cleaners brings that outfit to the front mm-hmm. for her. I think so, too, yeah. Okay, but it is an outfit that matches also. So it's not like she mixed and matched those items. They seem to be a set. Yeah, but you the function of the ma- machine confuses me. You're a boy. Yeah, there's socks, there's shoes. This is like I don't know a headband, something like that. Yeah, she she wears that yellow checkered suit, of course. But uh, uh, there's there's something more to it, right? Yeah, she has like a shirt with a little vest under it and knee socks and little shoes, little Mary Janes. It's yeah, a very it's, cute outfit. I think that the machine is to is to help her sift through the the just volume of clothes she has. It's less about like mixing and matching items. Is that what you're asking, Andrew? I think it's more like she has yeah. a vast archive <laughs> of clothes. And I'm unclear on like whether the machine is for mixing and matching, and also how much labor is required on her part. Mm. Is it just a machine for selection or a machine for like delivery? I think it's a little of both. Yeah, I think it brings the outfit wow. to her. Yeah. Yeah. You know how hard it is I, to look at your closet and everything sideways, and you're like, which one is that? Right. Can you imagine doing that every day when you're the cutest girl in Beverly Hills? Too much work. You don't have time. She has to go to school. <laughs> okay. Point made. That all makes sense to me. <laughs> uh, don't you love the line where she's like with Ty and I think Dion also, and they're like, <laughs> they like do yoga and then they like pick their book of the week, and then she says, that takes care of our minds and our bodies. <laughs> they keep. it's such a like she is working on self-improvement from before the movie starts she just like comes to a new realization about what that should be and what that really means yeah yeah it's also so funny that like sharon d d wow wow sorry sharon d (laughs) like are like we don't do weed that's for losers (laughs) that feels like such a very specific like elite 90s concept of like drugs are for dopes we're better than that (laughs) so much so that like poor travis has to go to a 12-step program for being a stone a skater stoner it's like come on he's 16 years old let him smoke a a doobie every once in a while (laughs) is this even a thing that's done boy (laughs) yeah by the way 
Is this even a thing that's done that people go to AA for weed? Is that a thing? Well, I, back then, I guess they didn't have all of these splintered, like, Narcotics Anonymous. You know, now I think there's an anonymous 12-step group for just about everything, like, by name. Back then, it's like, eh, yeah, you maybe went to AA and just said, oh, no, I'm fine with alcohol, but I, I do like to smoke weed, eat Egg McMuffins, and, uh, and, and go to the skate park. Do we think that Travis's parents are, like, the Birkenstocks? Oh. And that's why he goes to Beverly Hills High School? That's You're a great so right. point. Huh. Yeah, and, and it would explain his sort of hippie, crunchy nature. Yes. Uh, although his parents <laughs> would probably be incredibly disappointed if he gave up his hippie weed smoking, right? He still skateboards. That's not going anywhere. Yeah, that's true. He just has a new focus in life. Travis is the best of the boys. Like, there's like four boys. Like, Josh is very close. But Travis is like a top-notch teenage boy. <laughs> right? We agree? Yes. Yeah. A, a young Brecken Meyer. The first time I ever saw him, perhaps? So cute. I also feel he's like... He's cute. He's nice. He's very caring and sweet. He's genuinely concerned about Ty when bad mm-hmm. things happen to her. Yeah. He has passion. He loves to skate so much. Um, I feel like I really, I really don't... I think Christian is kind of... Um, kind of not great like i want to it's i understand he's gay and he's like going through his thing but it's um i don't like the scene where he comes over to Cher's house it makes me really i just think he he makes a lot of wrong wrong turns <laughs> yeah he's not he's, i mean as a teenage girl who had zero gaydar period <laughs> like to my own detriment multiple times um Christian's not doing a lot to, like, let Cher in on it. Like, once he's, like, we're friends and I trust her, he could be a little bit more forward with himself. I must talk about my favorite touch in the book, which comes on page 140, very late. I'm assuming many of us have this bookmarked, which is she's having a freak out about how she's, like, in the process of realizing (laughs) she loves Josh. And it says, I know what you're gonna say. was this the teen angst I'd heard so much about, I asked myself, as I walked blindly past the old hotels and weird mansions of Wilshire Boulevard. This Ty and Josh concept was wigging me more than anything. What was my problem? Ty was like my pal. I certainly didn't begrudge her a boyfriend. Instinctively, I had wandered onto Rodeo Drive. Not even shopping interested me, except for this one outfit I saw that was similar but not identical to Dion's hottest two-piece leopard thing. It was all alone in this stark window, and it sidetracked me for a minute. I thought I'd just pop into the store and see if they had it in my size. They did. (laughs) Next paragraph. What did Ty want with Josh anyway? Just straight back to the angst. See, this happens a few times in the book where, like, it's taking what is essentially a visual gag in the movie and trying to put it in text form, and it doesn't quite work. I mean, this particular Oh, one I loved it. Is, okay, I'm I mean, into this it. one works. I Th- this one works, but yes, I mean, it, it, she has to overwrite it to get there, and I think it's the overwritten nature of it that makes it funny, that she's, like, we're getting this whole inner monologue, as opposed to in the movie, she's just like, she walks by a window and says, oh, that's a cute top, and then we cut to her holding a, a bag or something, or it's, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, no. Uh, I think a few pages later, they, they try to do it again with in the movie. It's like, well, and you can all guess what happened next. Cut to a wedding. And then like, you know, she's just like, ew, no, I'm only 17 or whatever she is, 16. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and they there's sort of a transitional thing where it's like, oh, the wedding and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but yeah, again, doesn't really like, you know, the joke doesn't play. It doesn't, doesn't have that snappy timing. But that's fine. It's a book. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. It's, it tries really hard to, to get every single beat of the movie and those visual gags just like don't translate. Like I, I noticed the wedding one for sure. And also back to that scene where she's talking about the Hadians in class. And then right after uh, Mr. Hall like hands out people's great like report cards and one of the boys tries to jump out the window and it's like a very funny gag in the movie because it just like yeah. takes like half a second. Like he gets the, the report card and then he starts climbing out the window and someone has to pull him back in. And seeing that like written out in on a page, just like it's not funny anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And Travis doing the like acceptance speech thing is almost a break from reality in the movie. Like at the very least, there's like you know this the score swells like we're at the Oscars with uh, and uh, it, it's it's kind of a, a gag that I don't think that the movie has a consistent tone of of that sort of thing happening uh and in the book i i, I guess it plays okay but yeah it is uh I, I guess maybe i do notice a few of those weird things especially earlier on as the movie is like figuring itself out too i think every example we just mentioned is basically a face plant in the book except the one i brought up <laughs> the leopard dress thing to me is like the ultimate coup and I, I, I'll give away the, the the ghost here. Is that what that phrase means? Who knows? Uh, I, I, I'm not. I didn't love this book. I didn't like it even that much. But like that one joke about shopping for the dress in the middle of a meltdown, to me was funny, and it was funny because of the specific choice we're mostly criticizing about the narration. Like in that moment, we're able to get in Cher's head and sort of feel her spiraling and then getting distracted by essentially a shiny thing and then going directly back to spiral. I thought that was the only thing that hit better in the book because we were closer to the character than we are in the movie. Yeah, it worked for me too. I found that passage funny. Me too. Great. (laughs) Agreed. It also, like, a page later, like, over-explains the Gigi gag, which you just don't need to do at all. <laughs> yes, it really does. Right. <laughs> but, like, it works in the movie because it's, like, a visual expression that we all understand of, like, oh, she's in love, we get it. And the, in the book, because she has to over-explain it, it's almost funnier that she's like, here's a thing that happens in a movie that I'm currently experiencing. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's, like, kind of cute. <laughs> Well, Hannah, this is somewhere in between, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The juniorist of novelizations. The novelizations meant for child yeah. children babies. And <laughs> a full-fledged novelization that we that we would usually read. The the lowest of the low, and by that I just mean like the, the most rudimentary is is something right, like a Jurassic Park one, where it's literally there was a line in that book I remember that was like the 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 t-rex hit the side of the jeep ow it roared <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Baby. it's like ah, truly those like were fun days four people with single digit ages uh this is not a book for adults but it does seem to be like sort of bridging the gap it has a length that you wouldn't give to a seven-year-old a mm-hmm. 160 page book 
And I almost think, and I'm not forgiving it, because, you know, we have to judge it based on entertainment value. I almost think the over-explaining of a gag like that is because the audience is presumably, like, 12 years old, doesn't have the cultural touchstone for it, Oh, no, I totally agree. I I also, I don't think you would, if I was writing this novelization, I probably wouldn't capture that piece of visual uh, imagery. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that... Yeah, just throw it away. Yeah, just throw it away. Like, I don't think it's adding anything to that moment that would be helpful on the page. And the fact that it's there is funny. Like, she has, the author, they, have made a point to be like, this is a gag, you know? I'm like, oh, yeah, I do know. Thank you. Uh, And I'm kind of charmed by that, actually. But yeah, no, this is a book for ages 9 to 14. I agree. 100%. There's a joke that I think is an H.B. Gilmore edition really early on, where where she... Mm -hmm. Cher describes Josh as the Ralph Nader of step-siblings. That's not in the movie, is it? Mm-mm, I don't think so. <laughs> don't I thought that was another weird example of, like, who is this book for? Like, that's not something a 10-year-old would understand. Maybe in 1995. Yeah, maybe. There's also some weird stuff in this book where she's like, Josh has such sexy eyebrows, just like my dad's. And I'm like, stop. <laughs> oh, it's there's already a lot of, like, weird my enough dad that stuff. Yeah, Josh, I mean, like the main complaint many people have with Clueless is that Josh is her stepbrother, and it's weird, even though they are not related in any way, shape, or form, and they didn't grow up together, and they don't have a sibling relationship, which right. to me makes it fine that they want to yeah. kiss each other. So the more she's like, he's like my dad, it becomes <laughs> icky again. Yeah. Well, Dan um, Hedaya is a handsome. No, man. he's a he's a catch. He's a catch. He's a delf, as they say. The dad stuff is weird. (laughs) The dynamic with Josh weirdly reminded me of the Star Wars Revenge of the Sith novelization in which we know that Anakin's going to team up with Emperor Palpatine because that's sort of like the shape of the story. And there's like weird moments early in that book where Anakin's like, he was so weird and dark lordy. Like it's like he like it almost feels like he knows it already. And I started to feel that way again here, where I was like, she's talking about Josh in the early parts of this book like she already wants him, and she knows it. She would have passages where she was like, he was really good looking, I really liked having him around. He was checking me out, like stuff like that. I mean, that might just be catering to the young readers who are stupid and need things spelled out. I don't know. I mean, Cher thinks he's cute. That's clear in the movie she's calling him adorable she is commenting on his jawline and stuff she likes him she just doesn't know Mm -hmm. it herself yet but she likes him the whole time her attraction to him and affection for him is not like a new development over the course of the story yeah she loved him ever since she saw him in that super nintendo commercial sorry i'm talking about paul red's (laughs) early career again (laughs) the uh this is a consequence i think of of it being a, a book in Shear's head you can't put something forth like you know, I mean, she obviously says, yeah, he's a Baldwin, but like she, she, she admits he's attractive in the movie, but like, you can't put stuff in the book. That's like, man, I was really liking the way he looked, or I think he's into me or whatever she's <laughs> thinking. Cause they're all thoughts. It just, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And I, you know, I've said this on the podcast before, but if you're a kid out there, grow up. Amen. <laughs> this, I, I'm, this thing is happening to me where like, I don't really like this book that much, but because we're only talking about the di- divergences, I'm like, mm-hmm. my opinion of it's like growing as we speak of it. Well, let me defend the book a little in that, uh, yes, it does 
90% regurgitate the screenplay, but that screenplay is really good. And maybe we shouldn't be comparing this to other uh, movie novelizations like, you know, your Willows and your Star Wars and such, but more like what else are young people this age reading like i would say this mm -hmm. is like the best sweet valley high book you could ever possibly hope for right uh mm -hmm. or you know or you know uh, the upper tier of babysitter clubs or whatnot do you think kids these days watch clueless and are like wow the 90s that's a whole cool like i know that 90s fashion is like back with zoomers or whatever but like is this a, a sort of like formative text of the past for people? That's a great question. I don't know like what makes the 80s and now 90s nostalgia boom happen. If, it, if it's targeted at the people who were vaguely alive then and just weren't really, you know, keen to everything that was going on because they were too young. Or if it is like people who weren't even born then and are they are, yeah are are young kids are are, are 11 year olds fascinated by 1995 now i mean i'm not Maybe. entrenched in tiktok but i feel like what i occasionally see is like the the fashion of clueless which i do not think is indicative of the 90s as a whole no um is very hot like yeah. the matching plaid suits are like very hot and kids like it and mini skirts and little blazers and all of that is like chic again if it mm -hmm. or for the first time for real no, no. Do Zoomers watch movies? Just going back to the, the do Zoomers care about Clueless thing? I'm being serious. Like, what was like the what was like the the TikTok generation's hit of the summer in theaters or even streaming? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, they say that no, they do they do not. They watch YouTube, they watch TikTok, and uh, well, you know, five years Their ago, attention they were still, spans. Yeah, they they were still watching mm. movies a few years ago, I guess. I mean, it seems like Do Revenge, which is deeply indebted to Clueless in a in some ways, hit and young people liked it when that came out two weeks ago. Do Revenge Ooh. with Maya Hawk and this. Camilla. What's her name? Parker Bowles. No. Oh, okay. Mm, I don't know the girl from Riverdale, Camilla Mendes, who is beautiful. But like that movie has like a very heightened stylistic fashion sense. It has like a real soundtrack in the way that Clueless has like a banger soundtrack um, and has these sort of like interested parties about like female friendships and like boys and stuff that that has a more heightened concept than Clueless, I think. But uh, it feels like in the zone, like if you present the Zoomer generation with like the right version of this type of story, they connect to it. They're people. Right? They have feelings. Yeah, I guess young people do watch movies that streaming services tell them to watch. And, you know, all that you said <clears throat> Clueless is on Netflix. I, all it needs is the, to be on that homepage for a week, and maybe it brings itself to a well, whole new generation. Johnny, I think it's the combo of it being on the homepage and it having someone from uh, one of the TV shows mm -hmm. that they watch or from a Marvel. Yeah. Like people are watching The Gray Man because it has Captain America with a mustache. A terrible um, movie. I thought it was okay. You're wrong. Don't, don't make me read the <laughs> Remember with a trap door? Pretty cool. Anyway, we would be remiss if we wrapped up before talking about the biggest stylistic choice of the book. We all know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, the end? The the, 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 the last mm -hmm. few pages? Yes, yes. Yeah. Does anyone want to describe what's at the end of this book? Mm. Show's guide for the chronically clueless. 
<laughs> yeah, we glossary. get a nice little glossary yeah, of all the terms. And I thought that was a great little touch. I thought it was adorable. So for the listener, this is this book ends like a clockwork orange in that you read the whole thing and you're like, oh, they have some fun slang terms. In this one, you can actually understand what they mean. In clockwork orange, it's like, what the fuck does this book say? <laughs> and then you get to the end and there's like uh, things defined like Audi goodbye i'm leaving i'm out of here used in a sentence i'm audi <laughs> i will there's... say i i could have i could have gone with it going deeper that's one of my notes here <laughs> oh there's a few deep ones i mean it, it it's a shame that it also includes mentally challenged and postal uh, you know and then we get kind of vaguely cleaned up versions of uh what are are kind of you know unpleasant uh slang like jeepin, yeah, jeepin. Oh, I miss it. Oh, which yeah. here oh, is socializing defined as in a socializing jeep. in a yeah. jeep, which I think within the context of the film is having sex in your jeep. Yeah, definitely yeah. having sex. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or at least you know making out. I think that this this universe has a lot of people, um, hooking up with like without sex, right? Yeah, the, the yes. sex does not exist in this book. Well, no, no it doesn't exist in, in the book for sure. In Hannah, a very pointed yeah, make way. Make my point. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, Andrew. No, no, you're going to say what I was going to say. Um, that like there is a a meaningful difference that Cher has not had sex, and once Dion has sex, it's like a weird break in their friendship. That like suddenly Dion and Ty have this thing that they can talk about that Cher is not part of. Um, and the most important memorable line of the movie, you're just a virgin who can't drive <laughs> in the book has to be, you've never had a guy of your own and you can't drive because you mm-hmm. cannot explicitly say a thing that implies that she should be getting railed. Yeah, definitely. Forge. Yeah. It was devastating to see that line, um, ruined. In that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> Of course, it being the '90s, you can't you can't suggest that they're having sex, but you can, of course, put the um the 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 R slur for the differently abled in yeah, the glossary. You sure so, can. Yep. Yep. You different do. times. Different times. I think maybe the best one is Tisha. T S C H A exclamation point exclamation. Surely you jest. Beautiful cha. Um, we can't talk about sex, but. Murray can call Christian a cake boy (laughs) and a series of terms that are offensive Um, or at least not nice. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I will say that that rant is fairly gentle, although, yeah, uh, it's still there. Yeah, yeah, it clearly has connotations, which are not um, as positive as the book itself is towards Christian or the story in general or these characters are towards Christian. Sam Myers, you are the survivor of some sort of disaster. Am I? <laughs> Cher <laughs> is going to donate many of her belongings to you. Okay. So that you can quote, where, where's that wonderful quote? Um, let's see. So that you can quote, wade through the ruins in her things. One of the things she provides you is the novelization of the film Clueless. Knowing what you know now, would you advise yourself to read it? Also known as, would you recommend this book? Um, oh, wow. 
what is my answer to that? I think um, if I was talking to my sweet 12-year-old cousin <laughs> who was like, <laughs> I don't really like to read very much, <laughs> I'd be like, have you checked out this great, you know, this great novelization of the celebrated film Clueless? I think you could I think you'd really enjoy it. <laughs> But if I was talking Amazing. to my if I was talking to my 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 pal, my peer, probably not. Yeah, who to whom we would recommend it is a huge yeah. factor. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah Blackman. Yeah. You are in Alcoholics Anonymous as a marijuana addict. It is yeah. nineteen ninety-five. There are not groups in place structures in place for you to go get specifically weed help (laughs) and so instead you are lumped in there with as is clarified in the book many of the parents of Cher's friends are in aa according to page eight Mm. all of the parents of the friends do not like you because they are they have recently hit rock bottom from alcoholism Mm-hmm. And you're in there telling anecdotes about not being able to get off the couch. In the time that you would like to spend socializing with them, because they will not spend time with you, mm-hmm. would you instead read the novelization of Clueless by H.B. Gilmore? I think in this exact situation that you've laid out, I probably would. It feels like it's probably a thing that would be entertaining to me and not take too much focus, which I clearly have a hard time with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, in a larger circle, clearly this is not a book for adults. It's a book for tweens, and I would recommend it to tweens. Um, I do think it has some merit to it and some interesting points, which we discussed. Uh, but it's not, it's not high art, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Absolutely. Johnny Pomato. Oh yes. You are Summer's father who reports from war zones, according to page 52. (laughs) You miss your daughter terribly, and one day you get in the mail the novelization of Clueless by H.B. Gilmore from your daughter. Highly recommended, but you know, of course, that she is a child. Knowing what you know now about the contents of the book, would you read it? Uh, the guys in the platoon are going to razz me about this. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I, everything I said before, I think, stands that I think that uh, this is above average fare for the intended age group. Uh, so uh, even though it is a pale imitation of the uh, movie, I think it hits most of the best lines. Not all. We've, we've missed a few good ones. And uh, yeah, they could do a lot worse. And I personally enjoyed reading it because uh it was breezy and short and it didn't go on for like 260 pages when the whole thing is just an alien tending to space plants with a weasel uh so this is better in every way than say like et and the green planet uh so yeah i think that this does the job amazing andrew overbeam hello you are the least popular girl in your clique of popular girls. Your name is oh, no. Amber, and they hate you. I can't believe she hasn't come up yet. I, I wanted to shoehorn her in because I'm obsessed with the concept of Amber. And you who, dated Chris Kattan. 
that did the actor she? yeah the actress oh that's nice that's nice good for her yeah. good for chris um anyway everybody came out well in that <laughs> yeah you're part of the crew and that's cool and um, the school at large thinks you're cool but within the crew they all think you're fucking stupid and not chic at all <laughs> except for the one shitty dude he eventually comes around on you because you're down to smooch mm. is i assume why elton goes for her <laughs> at the end mm-hmm. um Anyway, you're trying to, like, fit in with the other cool girls who are constantly shoving you off the bench. And in order to do that, you know that they are doing something for their body and something for their mind. And you decide to choose a book to elevate your mind. Would you choose the novelization of Clueless to make you better up top? This is a reality where I don't run a novelizations podcast where I choose to spend a bunch of my time doing this anyway right you're a teenage girl named amber (laughs) greatest passions are really ugly hair and boys there's no context you know knowing what i know now there's no context in which i recommend this book there's really like aside from doing this podcast there's no i'm not going to tell anybody to read it i have theories about what was allowed to be put in here and what wasn't i mean here's the thing well why not put this in right now there are 20, 20 tertiary tomes, sequels to Clueless that exist. And we are going to, you're hearing this on some Thursday in 2023. We are going to- If you to say read them episode. all. Oh, okay. No, uh, Johnny, we are going to uh, present on, on four of them. Each of, each of us will read uh, one, or in my case, more, but- I might read two. I bought four. Amazing. We'll Amazing. I mean, some of the ones you bought are not in the to series. be included. Yes. I mean, if they're good, maybe we'll get there someday. But <laughs> anyway, on Monday, you will get an episode on the first four of those books. And I have a theory that they're going to be really exciting. I mean, this movie hands H.B. Gilmore. There are some other authors, but Gilmore is involved uh, in the series. This this movie hands this author such a fun world to play around in and as evidenced by the glossary in the back just like such a fun vocabulary to toss around and i think that freed from reporting what happened in the script of this movie it could be really terrific and i suspect that this author was really limited on what they were allowed to put in the book now i could be totally wrong they could be like rote rehashes of the movie we'll find out i was interested when this book change things up, but it was so rare that I didn't like having my appetite wetted like that. It was like, for lack of a better word, edging me a little bit. I was like, oh, I love novelizations. Wait, I have to stop loving them on this page. Hold on, uh, is edging so- in the glossary at the end of the book? <laughs> just want to check. Uh, no, don't. not there, not there. Okay, go on, Andrew. So, uh, yeah, this is a not recommend for me, but, you know, it's somewhere somewhere in the middle of all the books we've read. We It's not one of the absolute dog shit ones. So. I have a Sam question Myers. for the group oh, regarding Hannah, what's up? the tertiary tomes. Yeah. As people who have read Clueless and invested our hearts and souls in Clueless, knowing that there are 20 tertiary tomes, which we have to assume all-star share, do Cher and Josh stay together? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. I'm dying to know. Oh, I want to, on the record, what we all think. 
And then we'll see what happens. There's no way they don't break up and get back together at some point. It, whether that happens within the span of one book or it happens a few times. Uh, now, I guess uh, my question, and maybe this will be answered on these special episodes, uh, is this just a spinoff from the film and from this book? Or is this like based on the TV series, which I never watched? Is uh, she with Josh on the TV series? I, I don't even know. I don't, I don't think I even knew this. there was a TV I, I series. Had no <laughs> Uh, yes, it, it, I think it ran maybe four years or so, and uh, oh my God. it had a few returning cast members, notably not Alicia Silverstone, but um, uh, Stacey Dash, she, she reprised her role, and, um, uh, and maybe Amber as well, I, I think. It looks like full episodes are both on Daily Motion and YouTube, so I think we have stuff to do. Ooh, my yeah, friends. at some point we'll do we'll do a crumb where we watch an episode. Amber uh, Johnny, is back. Every, Amber is in this show. Every place that talks about these books online says like clueless is a series of 20 books there there isn't a reference to the series so i've got to think that they stand alone but we'll mm-hmm. we'll find out so yeah i can't believe i'm saying this but i'm curious to find out <laughs> i am too sam myers thank you so much for coming on to our podcast after not seeing me for two years and even then oh so briefly it's been a real pleasure uh, you guys are fun to talk to. Thank you for having me. Of course, we'll 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 see you again for the uh, the spinoff book episode, and our listeners will see you again in just a few days. Uh, to our listeners uh, who were just mentioned, please do rate our podcast. Please do review it. Please do subscribe to it. We have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash authorized pod. Go there. Check out the tiers. You know, there's a few. And uh, as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a famous piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you recognize what this is from. And here we go. Cher picked up her skis and tennis racket and headed towards the door. Where are you going? Josh asked. Oh, I'm going to donate these to refugees. You, said Josh. You're always taking things from other people. Why would you be providing them instead? Well, that's the thing. I've changed a lot over the course of this movie and or book. And now I am the giver. (laughs) Good night. So I was very inspired by uh, H.B. Gilmore's uh, edition of the the little dictionary uh, of terms in the back of this book. And in the spirit of that, I've created a game that I call Playing Fetch. Of course, for the listener, Fetch here is in quotes. Uh, And we have a a picture of of Gretchen Wieners in the slideshow in addition to Cher. I had Amanda Seyfried in there for like 12 hours. And then like right before this, I was like... She's not the one who says that, is she? <laughs> cool, cool. We did Mean Girls on the podcast, and I still don't have this straight. Um, cool. So the idea is that you're going to define for me the antiquated slang term, 
And so these are not the ones in the back of the book. They're just slang terms you might not know. Uh, please uh, buzz in with your first name, and then uh, you can you can take a guess after that. Okay, up first we have. Up first we have. Infobon, a 1990s slang term. Infobon. Johnny. Johnny. The description on a Vietnamese menu for a banh mi. Johnny, you are... Cur- no, I'm kidding. That's, that's <laughs> Hannah. deranged. I'm going to take Hannah an Blackman. informed guess. A high-speed internet connection. Hannah, I'm going to give it to you. It was just a, a cavalier way to refer to the internet in its early years. Mm. Here's a picture that represents the internet. <laughs> Here's a little tidbit about this term that is deeply stupid. <laughs> N- named most promising new word in 1994 by the American Dialect Society, Infobon was one of the many terms coined to describe the internet. I think we should bring it back. That- I remember the dawn of the internet, and I do not remember hearing this word. Same. Well, it was promising. <laughs> if Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric didn't say it in that Today Show segment, did was it really a term? I don't know. Bryant Gumbel, famously a uh, uh, graduate of Bates College. Ooh, um, really? Yeah, this makes me lose all respect for an institution I didn't already know about, which is the American Dialect Society. <laughs> they named it Most Promising New Word. Up next, Ponyo. Pomo, a 1990s term. Sam? Pomo. <laughs> Sam. I mean, does it just mean postmodern or does it have another meaning? I think you'll find that it means postmodernism. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's a point nice. for Sam. Nice. Yeah, some of these are still around. It's just this is when they popped up. Fishy of okay. the sea. Up next, almost everyone uh, on the board here. Brick house, a 1970s term. Johnny. Brick house. Johnny. Uh, I, I guess this is maybe a, a well-shaped derriere? <laughs> yeah, I didn't get too into what makes the person attractive, but it is an attractive woman. Oh, yeah. Well, it's her butt. Let's just say it's her butt. <laughs> and, and then I'm extra right. Fantastic. Okay, Johnny leading two to one. Wait, I Up got, next. Oh, wait, I got a point for my Vietnamese uh, banh mi joke? Wait. Yeah, I don't think that's correct. Yeah, no, I'm definitely no, you losing. Got, oh, so or tied. Did he just get who a point got internet? fun? Me, I got it. Hannah. Oh, Hannah her. got internet. You Sam got me. postmodernism. Johnny got this, so it's a three-way tie. It's one yeah. all around, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, for some reason I thought Hannah was a big goose egg. Okay. <laughs> Up next. A beats. Uh, I didn't say where it, what time this is from. I think it's because I don't know when it originated. Could we a beats use, for could the listener? A B? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, I will say a lot of us. Oh, Johnny, go ahead. Uh, no, you can. Well, if you're gonna give a clue, I take it. No, no, no. I, I'm gonna take a stab. Uh, is this uh, a term to describe an approximate time at which you'll meet? Uh, to use an, as an example, uh, a beats four o'clock. <laughs> wow. I almost want to give it to you, but it would be immoral. <laughs> uh, the hint I was going to give is that 
there are some establishments in Connecticut, where I'm from, named a Beats based on this slang term. I don't know if that's helpful. No. Mm. Based on the, the, the product that they sling. All right. I think we got to move on. A Beats is pizza. Oh. Mm. Origin not super clear, but allegedly Polish, and it arrived on the east coast of the United States first. So basically, there's all these restaurants that serve pizza that are called a Beats in like New Haven, Connecticut, like Yaleville, and the- uh, because people who make these restaurants are like, it's what my grandmother called it, or whatever. I would like to add that if you've never had Connecticut pizza, then you've never had pizza, my friends. I don't that's believe true. that. That sounds insane. Uh, yeah, th- th- there's no way that's true. <laughs> sounds fake. <laughs> hey, New Haven, pretty pretty famous for their pizza, mm-hmm. but I think my current um, city trumps it. Uh, up I'm next, lived in New York or continue to live in New York City. Yeah, ever the heard home of, of good pizza. pizza. <laughs> you psycho! Yeah. Your pies. Yeah, I, if you if you aren't giving me a pizza that looks and tastes like a lasagna, I'm out. <laughs> Up next, the three-way tie still going on. Oh, there's a picture of pizza. Doesn't it look good? It does, yeah. It's a lot of basil. Cap 2020s. This uh, this is not antiquated. It's a current term. Cap As in 2020s. a hat or is it to shoot someone? Neither. <laughs> it is a, a new permutation of cap that has popped up in the 2020s mm. with people far younger than all of us. <laughs> I think I know, but I'm, I'll be too embarrassed if I say the wrong thing and it's recorded. <laughs> I'm really excited for someone to embarrass themselves <laughs> with this. Please, please do it for us, Sam. Well, I don't know. Doesn't it just mean it means like good or cool, right? Like that's cap as opposed to mid, mid being bad or like lame. I kind of thought that too, Sam, but it turns out that when people are saying things it's are good, they're saying no cap. Oh. And that's the good thing. Oh, no. So it means the opposite of what I just guessed? <laughs> Not the opposite, okay. but it means the absence of a bad thing. And I guess, can anyone figure out what the bad thing is? Andy Circus does no cap. And that's Kurt. No, again. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll give this. Uh, I'll just throw this one out here. People often say, I think in in current like you know your 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 current SoundCloud cloud rappers and whatnot will say something, and then they'll say no cap, as in that is not a lie. Oh. The word means lie. Cap, you say. Great. Huh. No cap. The. Yeah. It was was not what I would have guessed. Okay. Uh, what is how does how what is the linguistic origin like? How, where does that? How do you a to see that? I don't have that for you. <laughs> I just don't get it. <laughs> Up so next, old. going back into the past. <clears throat> cement mixer, a 1930s term. Cement mixer. Oh. Hmm. Okay. I, I'm James Cagney. Okay. I'm an up and coming <laughs> vaudeville star, but I'm about to be a gangster. 
Uh, okay, uh, Johnny. Uh, yeah, go, Johnny. Uh, is it a? Uh, is it just a mouth? Like your your mouth, and you 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 you, you chew things around in it, and you're you're, you're like mixing cement. <laughs> I will say that this term refers to an entire type of person. It's oh, one okay. of those types of terms, mm. not merely a a body part. Okay, no, like no, she's a real cement mixer, that kind of thing. Yes, totally. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Oh, I, I think maybe I I have an idea now. Johnny. Oh wait, I'm allowed to guess again. <laughs> Go sure, why it, not? Babe. Nobody else is guessing. Is it like some sort of dame that chews you up and spits you out? It is not. Oh, okay. But what it is is someone who is terrible at dancing. Okay. Oh, like me. A cement mixer. What's that, Johnny? Like me. Yeah, I have a feeling it would describe more than one person on this podcast. Not me. I'm very sexy. And how? When I dance. Well, that's a different conversation, but those aren't the same thing. Dancing sexy is sexy dancing. It's how it goes. (laughs) Uh huh. This is like one of those major league baseball games where, like, they tie in the first inning and then it stays that way till inning (laughs) eleven. Up next, the 1930s again. The term Cadillac. Hannah? Hannah Blackman. That's like just like an expensive good thing. That's like a sign of mm. you fancy. It turns out that it's an expensive good very specific thing. Like a mm. like a car, like a Cadillac. It's a car. What if that was the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like a lady. Mm-mm. Like oh, okay. Mm-mm. Well, Mm-mm. I've been misinterpreting the film Solid Gold Cadillac for months. <laughs> It makes sense. Uh, these are all these are all crazy stumpers that I dug out of history. <laughs> Doesn't the Clint Eastwood movie Pink Cadillac refer to Bernadette Peters? I, I, I think Hannah's like lady answer is correct. Thank you, Johnny. That's very nice yeah. of you. This uh, form of Cadillac would be more applicable to the Clint Eastwood film The Mule. Oh, was it a oh, horse? I, I was going to say a horse. That was like on the tip of my tongue. I thought a thing it's you not ride. A horse, oh, it's not a horse, <laughs> but I love how excited you got about that. <laughs> well, a good thing there, I very didn't say few it. horses or mules of any kind in the mule. Oh. All right, preserving our tie here, a Cadillac. The 1930s term is an ounce of cocaine oh, wow. or heroin. Wow, that's a lot. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you can see why it would be valued like a Cadillac. And in the 30s, it cost only a nickel. I tell you. <laughs> Up next, of course, everything's still one to one to one. This is hopeless. They just get harder. Okay. (laughs) Mutton shunter. An 1800s expression. Mutton shunter. Hmm. Try not to guess something pornographic, but I think I'm (laughs) left with very little recourse in this situation. Um, Hmm. Is this a butcher? Is this a term for a butcher? It's not a butcher. (laughs) It's not a butcher. Shoot. Okay, this one, mutton shunter from the 1800s, means a policeman, a derogatory term. Uh, When looking for these, when looking for old-timey slang, I had a lot of trouble avoiding ones. Like, I would find lists, and I'd be like, "I, I think you actually just aggregated retired slurs. 
And so I was trying to avoid that for the most part. I think from what I read that Mutton Shunter is like a policeman whose beat involves the sex workers of the town. And so unfortunately, I think they are the mutton. Icky stuff. Oh. Oh dear. Mm. Okay. That's things that's have as taken dark a, as this uh turn. <laughs> yeah. That's that's as dark as this quiz gets. Okay, up next, our tie still raining. Mumbling Cove, <laughs> still in the eighteen hundreds. I will tell you that this one is also a person. It's like some schmuck who doesn't speak very clearly down down the street. <laughs> Maybe. I don't really remember what the answer is. <laughs> when I click, it'll come up. Mm. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I couldn't sleep f- from one to four this morning, and I put this together during that time. So, trying to focus on the cove aspect. So it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a watery thing. It's a, it's a, it's a longshoreman. It's a longshoreman. So something, someone who works down at the docks. This, of course, is. A shabby person or an unpleasant, deceitful landlord. Oh, gosh, it was so close. Uh. <clears throat> what was the first guess? Not correct, so don't worry about it. Okay, we, I can't even like kind of like bend no, it to make it work. You, you could, but it doesn't have the one specific aspect that really matters, which is the landlord part. I was close right. if you consider that the tenant lives on a houseboat. Mm? <laughs> mm. <laughs> don't Great give point. it to him. Oh, okay. Great point. Okay, up next. <laughs> with a picture of the flop glopple, we have an 1800s term, flap doodle. Ah, uh, flap doodle. Of course, the flop glopple from E.T., the Book of the Green Plant. Uh, is a flap doodle like a dandy, like a silly person? It is not. Okay. It is a person. Well, I was close. <laughs> And aren't all people a bit silly? <laughs> a flap doodle. It's derogatory. I'll continue to drop hints. Ah. Not good to be a flap doodle. Kind of trying to walk a tightrope here. It's like, well, I don't want to insult anyone. <laughs> and you said there's no slurs on this. Well, this is not the type of thing that would be considered like a slur against, uh, you know, a minority or a, a protected group. This is like, this is like, um a bad dancer type of situation. Is it oh, like a oh. lazy person, a layabout, a real a flap doodle? Never gets anything done? No, but done? I can, I, I, I feel the word fits, so I mean, I'm right there with you. Sure. Okay, great. So flap doodle, an 1800s slang term, of course means a sexually incompetent man. See, oh. I was going to say, if this was a slur, it would refer to gay men. Uh-huh. Sure, but I didn't say that's, it, because you said there were no slurs, and I didn't it, want to be a slur of person. That's not what this means, though. <laughs> I see that, but I feel like it's related. I don't know how I keep missing these. <laughs> I mean, this one is, this one's quite, um, it's vivid once you know, you know, like, I, I, I see the, I see yeah. where it comes from, yeah. Right, it makes you wonder what is flapping. Yeah. So, um. The doodle. The doodle. The doodle. <laughs> there you go. Of course. Uh, the 1800s, definitely the most goofy era of slang I've discovered. Uh, this will end in a three-way tie because we're just... My challenge for the for the next Clueless episode is to do this game, but on like a playable level. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be my goal. Okay, the final slide. Completely unwinnable, I now realize. The term, which I will say... 
maybe could be applied to like a mean girls type of character or a clueless type of character. Someone on a chameleon diet. This is a, a term from the 1700s. I wish I knew something about how chameleons eat, you know? Like, I want to know what the implication is. Do they eat a lot? Sam, it's even worse. This is based on a misconception about oh, chameleons. No. Oh, no. Mm. Of course it is. It's 1700. <laughs> what do they know about chameleons? <laughs> Literally. They're little mittens. <laughs> it could be that they only eat lettuce, but I don't think that's what it would be. Yeah. I might guess that they stick out their little tongues and grab things, like frogs. And that, therefore, a chameleon dieter is someone who picks at other people's plates, like Ooh. my dad. Mm, I like that. I like that answer. Good answer. Good answer. I, ju- <laughs> I just can't give it to you, but I love, I love it. Thank you. Okay. That's I fine. just can't challenge objective fact. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I took a guess and it was wrong. That's okay. So, of course, a chameleon diet is... Well, let me put it this way. Because chameleons move so slowly, they were once believed to get all the nutrients they needed from the air. Oh. And as a result, a chameleon diet was a missed meal or a particularly meager diet. Mm. I guess I can okay. kind of give it to Hannah. Particularly meager? I don't know. Mm. What do you think? Let's give it to Hannah. No, I want to end on a tie. I want this to be equitable and fair <laughs> and all of us together because that's how it was. <laughs> Okay, Hannah, Sam, and Johnny will return in the next Clueless episode game to settle who is the winner here. We are in a three-way, which is something that a flap doodle never would find himself in. (laughs) Or would be be, panicked. He'd be so embarrassed, yeah. (laughs) It's a flap doodle's worst nightmare. (laughs) Funny.